Well, let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord God, we're thankful, as always, for the reminders from your apostles and your prophets of your will for us. We'd ask that we would be laboring to dig as much as we can, find you in it as much as we can. In your son's name, amen. We're in Romans 10 this morning. I, I think I was talking to somebody. It might have been um, who would it, who would it have been? Uh, might have been Phil Carr was over. We were talking about the gospel. And so, of course, you end up in Romans 10 because of that. And Romans 10, all of Romans is about certain issues that are you might say big on Paul's plate at the time and big on the church in Rome's uh, plate. Um, not necessarily on our plate so much, uh, other than theologically. But basically, if, if you wanted to know where we get, how we get to Romans 10, uh, Paul is trying to explain to Jewish people how the Gentiles are made joint heirs with them in Christ, and he says at the end of Romans 9, what shall we then say? This is at the top of your left-hand column. What shall we say then? That, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness obtained it. That is, righteousness through faith. But that Israel, who pursued the righteousness which is based on law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it through faith, but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. A couple quotes out of Isaiah that, I, for, that, that Paul's referring to there right below it. You can take a look at those. So when he says, in the, that's the end of chapter 9, and so chapter 10, verse 1, when he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now he's speaking of his Jewish brethren. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. Now, other than theologically, and if you want to come over sometime, we can go at it theologically about your views of these issues. And those are, those are well worth pursuing. But for us, generally, we're not struggling in our concerns about our Jewish brethren or our Gentile heritage. All of us are pretty much Gentiles. There's, I think Caleb has got some element of Hebraic something, and I think Ancestry.com told me I had less than 5% Iberian Jew or something like that. So not a whole lot. You're Gentiles. And it's been a Gentile church for a long, long time, centuries. But we do have people in our lives that we care about, that we wish were saved. That you have a heart's desire and a prayer that they may be saved. We prayed for Yuki's dad last week. We're praying, praying for various family members of the families here that have unbelieving um, parents. Well, as long as Leslie's parents were alive, they were unbelieving. We prayed for them. We had a heart's desire and prayer that they may be saved. 
A lot of these people, a lot of, you know, there are people that are just awful. You've met some of those, right? The Irish. That's it, pretty much. No, it's not the Irish. It's, it's people who are just awful people. And you, you find it hard. Yes, you know Jesus died for them. Yes, you know they can be saved. They can be forgiven. But it's not a heart's desire. And I really want them to know. Because you have a connection somehow. Family, friendship. Um, ever say that about somebody? Oh, they're so good. They'd make such good Christians. And that's not inconsistent with what Paul's dealing with with his Jewish brethren. They have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. They desire to be righteous. You could see, you know, when the, when the, the humanists put a billboard south of town that says, you could be good without God, other than the fact that, you, you know, that, that makes no sense, uh, it, it demonstrates that they have a desire and a claim a wanting about being better people. Why is the coexist bumper sticker have a market at all? Shouldn't it just say fight? Last man standing wins. Is that what we're because that's but no that, that all those things are signals. Misguided ignorant, not enlightened, they want to be good. They want you to be good. They want to be good themselves. They want righteousness. And they want it, not through some Jewish uh, uh, law-keeping, but through their own secular humanist law-keeping. What are, you know, what's the, uh, what are the commands? You know, tolerance or something else. We bear them witness that they, they want righteousness, a zeal, for being ignorant, verse 3, of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. A simple equation. This applies to good people the world over. You have a heart for them, you want them to be saved. You sometimes question, aren't they already? Isn't goodness good enough? Well, Paul was dealing with good Jews. And because they were ignorant, they were not enlightened, all the zeal for goodness left them trying to establish their own righteousness that they would offer. And they did not submit to God's righteousness. And the difficulty about your righteousness, just as a warning, and you may be self-aware of your, your own depravity as you, as you went through this path yourself, that we could be really bossy about other people in your sense of righteousness, really incensed that someone did something that you consider on the wrong side of the ledger. And it's amazing when you design your own righteousness, there's huge chunks, you know, the things you're doing, the things you did, there's all sorts of good reasons why you should be able to do those evil things, but there is no excuse for whatever your pet sin is. You're trying to establish your own righteousness, not submitting to God in his righteousness, because when you submit to someone else's righteousness, anyone else's, you have to keep all of it. Right? That's the nature of the law. 
that if I submit to one portion and claim it's because it's the law, if it's because it's the law, that means every inch of the law. If the law is an authority over you, every inch of the law is an authority over you. Because as soon as I say it's not in this part, I am saying that I am in charge of it. Seeking to establish their own and make it look like it's righteousness. This is what the world does, whether they're Gentiles or Jews, Unitarians, humanists, evangelicals who aren't Christians. So we need to know, since righteousness is, a, is kind of the big thing that everybody knows there should be about. Everyone knows good and evil, right? You've heard of good and evil? Um, and you may have all sorts of bizarre notions that evil is a substance and it's floating around and making you evil or something. But you know that not only is there good and evil, but that good is good. Is, is that a little too self-evident? It's not just two ways of being, good and evil. There are not just saints and Nazis who are just different kinds of people. Sure, they don't get along but they're saints and Nazis. We know that good is good. And everyone knows that good is good. I don't care if you're a Buddhist, I don't care if you're a Hindu, I don't care if you're a Muslim, you're a Christian, whatever you are, you know that good is good. And we're all trying to get at it, first off, Two, when we find that it's a choice between submitting to God's righteousness and creating your own, we decide it would be much more comfortable to create our own. Because then you get to have the sins you want, blame the people you don't like for being evil, you know, and, and have a sense of yourself that is generally good. Rather than submitting to his righteousness, whether it's the law of Moses or the law of liberty in Christ and faith, you submit. A submitter is someone who obeys everything they're told to do. For Christ is the end of the law. That everyone who has faith may be justified. Now one of the problems in biblical translations is you don't always know what other word could be used. The word justified is the word righteousness. And sometimes justified conveys what you want it to convey. But at least since he's talking about righteousness here, submitting to God's righteousness, being ignorant of righteousness, if I have everyone who has faith may be righteous, that's what you're looking at. Justification makes you righteous. But the word is righteousness. So we're stepping away when we, when we realize that people are trying to create their own righteousness and being ignorant as to how God gets you righteous, find that they're not there. Paul does it in Romans 7. He, he was killed by the law. He says, if the law had not said thou shalt not covet, I would not known what it was to covet. He says, I was alive once apart from the law, but when the law came, sin came to life, and I died. We are set free. Christ is the end of the law. We are set free from it, and every, because creating lawful obedience 
I can't get there if it was God's law, and I'm cheating if I make it my own law. Moses writes, verse 5, that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by it. That's out of Leviticus 18. It's on the left-hand side, about halfway down. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my ordinances, by doing which a man shall live, I am the Lord. Moses wrote that and lets you know that if you're going to practice righteousness based on the law, that's what your life is going to be dependent on. You've got to keep it all. You've got to do it all. But he contrasts it to a righteousness, verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith is a righteousness by the law which is only absolute obedience. Most of us have spoiled that one. That's why we start to create adjustments to the law that suit your own disposition. Well, he doesn't really mean that I should do that, does he? Doesn't really mean I should do that. Whatever the adjustments that you're making. But the righteousness based on faith says... Now, he's, he is coming out of nine chapters of making the common problem with all men, Jew and Gentile alike, to be sin. The common answer to be faith. And that this is the true election. And that he's recommending righteousness. Not recommending freedom from righteousness, but freedom from law. Because law did not create it. We could be zealous, but ignorant. Zealous, but not enlightened. The righteousness based on faith. Now I want you to notice something through the next portion of the scriptures here. This all has to do with heart and mouth. This all is referenced in terms of how it touches you in heart and mouth. Or the word here in the text is your lips. We're all wanting the good. And now we want to know, well then what is the Christian good? If Paul is saying the wicked or the ungodly are trying to make their own righteousness and they're ignorant as to how to do it, they're either incomplete if it's God's law or their self-rewarding personal laws are not there to please God. They don't know that there is a righteousness through, the, through God. So what is the righteousness for the Christian if it's not the law? First off, it doesn't say something. I don't know if this is one of the most confusing verses known to St. Paul. And he's really good at confusing verses. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart. It says, do not say. Thank you, Paul. Could you straighten out the number of negatives you have? What is it saying? First off, in the negative, it's a denial. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. So first off, you have to be clear that there's a negative... Um, a, you might say the presence of a non... Oh, okay, let's straighten this statement out. 
you're not doubting the myth of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say the faith that is in you, the righteousness based in faith, does not look at the Christian myth. And when I say myth, I'm not saying fake story, fiction. It's the nature of a kind of story. The Christian myth of Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, was incarnate in human form, in Bethlehem, was born of the Virgin Mary, grew up teaching the word of God, crucified for your sins, was dead, buried, and raised again, and ascended to be with the Father, from which he will come to uh, judge the living and the dead. That's the myth. That's the story of Christian, the story of Christian teaching. So don't say things that undo that. He says, don't say, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the, from the, uh, from the dead. You don't say things like, oh, I'm not entirely sure. You look, talk to a liberal bishop in the, one of the different uh, old line communions of supposed Christians. Oh yeah, Christ, well, he was really just a great teacher. No, he didn't really rise to the dead bodily. It was a metaphor for you know, new life and springtime. You know, they have all sorts of things going on. But they're raising questions. The righteousness based on faith says, don't say that. Don't question Christ's heavenly source. Don't question his resurrection. Don't say he... Well, the, the aspects of the faith... You can see this in Corinthians, where in Corinthians 15, he talks about the resurrection, and, and he goes through a list of, of comments about Christ's appearance after his resurrection. Verse 3 of chapter 15. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. It was not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Whether or not it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. We are telling a story of the work of Jesus Christ. The righteousness based on faith is centered on that story. It's not just the centerpiece for our Christmas time observations. Oh, the baby Jesus. Or the Easter celebrations. Oh, Jesus, uh, like Tammuz, weeping, and, and, and other crucified saviors. No, it's the Christian story. Don't say things that deny its actuality. Because who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. When I have positions that deny the reality of the incarnate God, I am denying the righteousness based on faith. That's what you get to. Secondly, in the positive, but what does it say? First says, what does it say? Don't say this. 
Then it says, what does it say? Verse 8. The word is near you. Now listen, this is where he starts his... uh, Though he's talking about belief and talking about saying, he says, what does it say? The word is near you. On your lips and in your heart. That's what I'd like you as believers. One, One, you as believers... Make this kind of assessment of you. You as believers also make this kind of assessment of dealing with those that are dear to you that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because nothing less than this, nothing less than this will save. Oh, we could offer a Christianity that was well-churched and chanted the creeds back at you. Saying true and wonderful things. I I don't want to hear a creed of what the church believes. I want to hear a creed of what you believe. Because it's in your heart and on your lips. If it hasn't been in your heart and on your lips, you say, well, but the creed is so beautiful. I like the creeds. But again, I want to... Oh, I think I mentioned this to you maybe recently. Um, Barclay, who... William Barclay, who wrote commentaries back in the 60s. A lot of Christians had them. He wrote his autobiography, spiritual autobiography, in which he denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he addressed the problem of him going to church faithfully. I think he was Anglican, but I'm not sure. Um, and saying the creeds where he professed Jesus raised of the flesh um, and answered the question, well, how can you say the creeds? He said, well, I'm saying what the church believes. I'm, I am vigorously defending the belief of the church in that, not my own belief. Well, there's some honesty there. But the man's, you know, unsaved because his lips were not of his heart. He said, but I'm not... That's such a wonderful statement. Okay. Have you ever... Have you ever tried to relate a movie that you just saw to some friends? And you know you're not a writer. You know you're not a poet. You do your best, though. You, you try to find the key themes. And then, well, then there's this guy who did this. Sometimes the movie was so good and you just have to bring up the title and everybody fills in the blanks because they all saw the movie. All of them remember. And they might even gaspingly offer a few scenes from the movie that, that they know so much about, but it's down to the well of their being. But, and they know they don't do good credit. The director did a far better job than they have in just explaining it. Yes, there are better writers than you. Better poets than you. But in theory, you were impressed by this movie. In theory, Jesus Christ's incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension to be with the Father, gripped you at some point. You either believed it or you didn't. If you didn't believe it, well, you know, we, we could talk about other things sometime, or maybe pursue that at some point. But if you are calling yourself a Christian, this movie impressed you. 
And you might not be able to say it as well as the creeds say it, but dear heavens, you say it. Your lips, your heart. You say, well, that's really awkward. Write it out. I think they still make paper. You know, some places, maybe at Staples, you could buy what's called a notebook. And, uh, and you get a pencil, and you sit down on a Sunday afternoon because you've got nothing else to do. And the teams you like really aren't doing that well, so why watch the NFL? Write out your creed. Tell yourself what it is that you believe. The righteousness, what does it say? In your lips, on your lips, in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. This is what Paul's saying, you're holding. That's what we're, that's what we're claiming here, is that St. Paul said some things 2,000 years ago, and when I say I am a Christian, I'm saying I have the same spirit, Christ, salvation, that this man is claiming to have. And that what he points to, I go, yeah, exactly right. God made flesh. Because, this is why it's so important. What does it say? That it say things that are rooted in your heart and your claim of it. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. Oh man, that's loaded. You go outside in front of the church. Little sign. All Souls Christian Church logo. Open Bible. Latin. Jesus as Dominus. It says that here at the top. Oh, excuse me. Jesus Dominus est. My Latin's not good. Jesus is Lord. It's the centerpiece. So that when you're sitting there with your notebook and that paper you had to borrow because you couldn't get out the staples, title it, Jesus is Lord. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, comma, you will be saved. Isn't that what we're concerned with here? You know, my heart's desire that is my, my dear ones be saved, right? People that are trying to be good and have the coexist bumper sticker and, you know, things like I'm with her on the back of their car. They want to be good. They want to be considered good people. They want to reach this point. You have to know what was that saved you, and you have to know what you're trying to get them to. So consequently, you know, if I confess Jesus as Lord, now, we know we're not, this is not Hufflepuff. Is that a word? Harry Potter? Okay. What's the name of that school? Hogwarts. This is not Hogwarts. This is not where you get a little stick and certain words you say and the magic happens. I said in Latin, Jesus Dominus Est. I'm saved. You say, is that how it works actually? Because well, this is one of the benefits of him telling you what you shouldn't be saying. This has to be Jesus as Lord echoed on your belief in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And not the belief 
in any way that calls into question what God revealed about the life of Christ. When God reveals things about the life of Christ in the scriptures, you believe it. That's the power of it. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your lips. Not if you just say the words, Jesus is Lord. Because the word Lord here... Well, I'm going to get to that in a moment. It's a couple of verses later. But do you notice that? He says, it's on your faith. It's on your, excuse me, it's on your lips. It's in your heart. If you confess with your lips, believe in your heart. Then he says in verse 11, the scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and bestows his riches upon all who call upon him. For, quote, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And what he's doing is hanging this in the Old Testament. He's saying that these are the standard elements. Belief in him and calling on him. It's not just me chanting in the church service the right creed, even if it's the creed of your heart. Say you went home, you ate up your Sunday afternoon with writing up the creed of me. And heaven said to start with Jesus is Lord. So I'm going to put that Jesus is Lord. First off, don't put that down because I said, told you to put it down. He better be Lord. And what do I mean by Lord? Okay. Tell all the story, get everything down. Maybe you're a visual person, so you draw a little manger, a star of Bethlehem, some sheep. How are we doing? I'm confessing with my pen, or, and then I read it aloud to myself. I've confessed with my lips that Jesus is Lord. It's more than that. Why is it always more? Because this, the work of Christ wasn't just an event in time. You know, uh, back when I used to teach, I used to go through various mystery religions with um, high school students. And one of the mystery religions of the first century was the Mithras uh, cult that was in the Roman army. And the Mithraeum uh, churches are, have a standard, well, they, they looked a lot like ancient churches, uh, pews and and a, and a chancel and so forth and an altar. It was pretty standard. Um, and, and, and the Mithraic worship was uh, centered on the act in the uh, god Mithras's moment. Mithras is one of the spiritual agents of uh, Zoroastrian god, the seven spirits of Ahura Mazda. Mithras is one of them. Well, he, at some point in his career, and he always wears a Persian hat, he looks very hip because it's like a knit cap that is lumpy in the back. You know how you, they hang it out the back. Well, that's what he's always looking like because he always had this sculpture in front, a painting in front of a Mithraeum. Um, slaying the Persian bull in the Mystic Cave. Okay, got that? And he's on the back of a bull, stabbing it. And there is a dog and a snake biting at the bull's vitals underneath. And two torchbearers off to the side, Cautas and Cautas Frates, and they are always in the picture. And uh, there is a stalk of corn growing out of the bull's tail. Okay, got that? 
slaying the Persian bull in the mystic cave. Centerpiece of their religion. Jesus Christ's incarnation, birth, death, burial, and resurrection is not the slaying of the mystic bull of the Persian cave. It's not just the story that's the centerpiece. Why did Jesus Christ die? Didn't need to die? Didn't want to die? Um, die for sin once for all. He's dead because the story is about you and so when you just turn around and say to a room or to your empty self or, or chanting it at the church service that these things are true he said shouldn't there be a, another lip response than that? More than just declaration because it's declaration is part of it but it's calling upon the name of the Lord. When I say Jesus is Lord, he quotes Joel 2 here. says it off to the side here, down near the bottom. And it shall come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. The Lord there is the name Yahweh. I am, I'm, I'm filling in some blanks here. I'm beginning to realize I cannot doubt the revelation of the Christian myth. I have got to affirm and believe it in my heart to the extent that I say it in twofold ways. The declaration of it, the preaching of it, and the calling on him, because part of it is the evangelism of the gospel, and part of it is it's evangelism to you. Because if you want to be saved, these are the things that you have to concern yourself with. So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, something we have to remember is that uh, so many people think that well, the, the, the lips come second. We don't confess to get the belief. We confess because our heart is there. And you will confess adequately and wonderfully and faithfully, even in the face of death, if the belief is there. But I can't say it enough. And too many Christian kids growing up saying it in church and Sunday school. It doesn't hold them up at the, the end of days called State College. It doesn't, they don't really believe it. It doesn't help them out. But they can take a stand for that which they believe. That which they do believe. We had an argument on Thanksgiving because it's the Wilsons. Um, my uh, family was there and got an Abbey were out of town, but there was enough Wilsons there. And then the Sri Lankans came over. That added a certain spice. Then a couple of, you know Brian Howard, real estate guy, ex-NFL player had an old NFL friend of his also in town. They came over to smoke cigars. And somebody, my daughter probably, who is a, again, a soul singer, somebody asked who was, maybe Graham, uh, somebody asked who were the best three female vocalists in history. And, uh, you know, and Katie barred the door. It's amazing. I think some of the people there would have died for their opinion. 
If Beyonce was not on the list, the life was over. You should be slaughtered like a dog if you don't believe that Linda Ronstadt is the best female vocalist ever. And then we moved on to the best rock male vocalist, and the best band, and the best song, and then and no agreement on anything. But everybody, where they believed in their heart, could not be stopped from stopping the conversation, telling someone much more important than they were, like myself, to shut the heck up and listen to sense. Because they believed it. It's amazing. I mean, it's Sammy Hagar or Billy, what's his name? David Lee Roth. What Van Halen is the right Van Halen? Because you have a belief. Right? You have a belief? Can't shut you up. You might want to check. Do you believe? the Christian myth. Because we want to say it. We want to tell someone who doesn't know it. We want to talk about it with our Christian friends because they believe the same thing we do. And we want to, my goodness, there's just not enough English. Let's sing some then. Let's get together and sing hymns about this story. Because we believe it. Because if you believe in your heart that truth, that myth, that story in its entirety, and it drove you to call upon his name and declare it to others. You have said with your lips, Jesus is Lord. You will be saved. Now, I suppose you're at church because you like the idea of being saved. Let's care about this for ourselves. Let's care about this for presenting the gospel to others. But how are men to call upon him, verse 14, in whom they have not believed? This is a rhetorical question, by the way. The answer is, they can't. If I get people to say the Christian words without belief, how many times have you been in a situation where someone's supposed to sign a card or say, yes, I raise that hand. No, have belief be absolutely the softest thing they could possibly engage in just so they'll walk the dang aisle. If they, if they haven't believed, how can they call on him? If you're calling on him to create your belief, you're denying that verse. They can't call on him if they've not believed. Because you have to be supplicatingly on your knees before the living God saying, Lord, save me. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who went down to his house justified? The guy who said, Lord have mercy on me, a sinner. How are they to believe in him and whom they've never heard? Another rhetorical question. They can't. This is a story, this is a myth that is communicated to somebody else. This is why the lips are important. It's part of the magic of being human. We're a bunch of autonomous runabouts selves that have got different views of Princess Bride and Sammy Hagar and our souls are damned because of our sins and the work of God in this world is more than a Hollywood director but there it was the magic of our connection with each other and our ability to convince one another this is what 
we're about. We have it on our lips so that others can hear. And how are they to hear without a preacher? They can't. And how can men preach unless they're sent? That's what I'm doing this morning. Get sent to preach the belief you have. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. This is something that we, this wonder of the human condition of autonomy needing voice to speak across the void, whether it's written or spoken, you need language. And we as Christians need the belief in the Christian myth so that it will come out our lips honestly, not hoping that chanting the church creed will make you believe it. But they have not all believed, obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Just a, just a helpful tip. Most everybody, now this is, you can believe differently. I, I don't have any problem with that. You're not going to listen. When you finally get down to business, you finally get out there preaching on a street corner, handing out tracts, doing whatever it is you do. When you finally speak to your friends or your family members, those you love, about Jesus Christ, because you believe it. Leslie spent years trying to minister to her parents. They died without the Lord. Just because they heard, just because you say will make you believe, just because they heard won't make them believe. But it's the only way. So faith, verse 17, comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. That's our only capability. We all, our only path to this is believing, speaking, knowing the limits of that speaking, but knowing the positive limits they can't believe and call unless they hear, but in the main they won't believe. But it's the only way. Salvation is hanging on how you speak and whence you speak. Do you claim the Christian faith? Do you know it down to the well of your being? And are you so excited that you'd rather tell someone about this than your opinions about Sammy Hagar? You know what it is to be excited about something you believe. So much of salvation depends on this preaching. It's something that we live in this world is sort of cursed with, but we have heard, we have believed. That's why we get together on Sunday morning and sing hymns is because we love the Christ it speaks of. The story is true to us. We want to say it. Examine yourself and examine your ministry to those that you love. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Your mercies to us, the work of your Son, the truth of the tale, the power of your Holy Spirit to regenerate us when we call upon you. Thank you. In your son's name, amen.